and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Hey, Zach. And Vivian Cabrera. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon, friends. Hello. How goes it? Things are good. How are you guys keeping yourself uh, entertained in this what what day are we on? Uncountable 50? number. Day fifty. Does anyone know? I well, I I for one have been uh, <laughs> spending some time with someone I have a lot in common with. Uh, both of us were cut from our high school basketball teams. Um, <laughs> I went on to be a podcast host uh, for Jesuitical. He went on to be uh, the greatest basketball player of all time. But uh, I've been really moving through the Michael Jordan documentary. Um, it'd be like it, it, so far. It's been like if uh, you know. Michael Jordan's best friend was asked the question, like, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? And they made like 10 episodes explaining why they would canonize Michael Jordan. Um, that's what this documentary's been like. But the but it ends this weekend. So I'm going to be sad when that's gone because it's also been my only uh, the way to consume sports right now. Yeah, no, I know this will shock you, but I've actually been watching it as well, Zach. Oh. Um, it's been... Yes, that does shock me, actually. <laughs> I'm I'm a little behind. I'm on episode six um, because uh, I've been trying to watch it with my dad. As some some good father daughter bonding in this quarantine time. Oh, that's nice. Um, so we have to find times to do it together. Uh, but we're trying to catch up so that we can watch the finale in real time this Sunday. The real question is: Is Vivian the Dennis Rodman of the podcast group? Um, I, I understand uh, that reference. She is the only one uh, with a tattoo. <laughs> This, all right, yeah. So, all right. Anyway, Vivian, how have you been? What have you been? What are you been up to? So, I have been listening to a lot of uh, music recently. Throwing it back to some Taylor Swift. Um, I was in. A, I got in a conversation with a friend uh, over a, an article in the Rolling Stone magazine that ranked all of Taylor Swift's songs, all 149 of them, I believe. Um, and let me tell you, it was so wrong. So, 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 so wrong. So, I got a little uh, bit heated about that. Um, so I am currently working on my own uh, rebuttal piece called America Staff uh, Ranks Taylor Swift's Best Songs for Quarantine. It's still to be determined if uh, we will be running it. So what what's in the top three for and I guess what makes a good song, Taylor Swift song for quarantine? It I think has to be one that like brings you back to like happy, like comforting times. I think we're all kind of really anxious um, and try, just trying to like find comfort food, comfort um, movies, things that are comforting. So like, what about like Cruel Summer? Because that to me is like a perfect driving around with the windows down song, which I feel like this, but also this does feel like a very cruel summer, quite literally. I see what you mean. However, I, all I'm saying is I'm very upset that Christmas songs are on this list because if you didn't write the Christmas song, it should not be counted as your own song. Taylor Swift hasn't written half her songs, though. Yeah. Whoa, shots fired. <laughs> anyway, different conversation. feels like we should move on before we get into that territory. Who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to our good friend, Colleen Dully. You will probably know her from her hit podcast, Inside the Vatican, produced by American Media. Uh, she's also the assistant editor for audio and video at America. Um, and we wanted to talk to her today to see how the pandemic is unfolding in Rome and how Pope Francis has has responded. Um, and also talk about some of her own, her own writing and how she's coping with life uh, under quarantine. So, uh, Colleen, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thanks for having me. I miss you guys. Welcome. We miss you too. So much. We're separated only by only by a couple rivers and an island. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen, are you calling us from your uh, your tent? I am calling you from my audio tent, you know, just a casual Friday afternoon, drinking wine, talking to some buds in my audio tent. <laughs> Perfect. So close it so far. Yeah, I guess I should clarify that I'm recording under a blanket, which is where I've been doing the podcast so as to dampen the sound in my very echoey apartment. Well, it does sound great. So we appreciate your fort building and recording efforts, at least on this end. Only the best for Jesuitical. Thank you. We're honored. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, let's get into it. What? So we're recording this uh, Friday, May 15th. Uh, some restrictions are starting to be lifted all around the world, but also in Rome. So what does uh, life in Rome at the Vatican look like right now under quarantine? Yeah, right now, uh, a lot of the Vatican's operations have been pretty stripped down. They're down to the essentials. Um, people are working remotely. They've got kind of a skeleton staff coming in. But in some key areas, they've really ramped up what they're doing. So like, uh, as soon as public masses were canceled in Italy, Pope Francis decided to start live streaming his daily mass. So, of course, there's a whole team working on that. They've got interpreters and now up to, I think, a million people watch the daily mass every day. It's really crazy. Um, those will stop on Monday, the 18th. Uh, he'll do the last one then. Can we pause there real quick? Yeah. Why? If you could speculate, what's the rationale behind stopping a program that a million people are watching? around the world. You know, I really wish that they would continue doing it personally. Um, I think that the thing is that Francis usually sees these masses as he likes them to be intimate. Like they had had talks before about trying to broadcast these masses and he had said, no, I don't really want to do it. Um, and I think that he likes to have a place to kind of like speak freely, preach freely, you know, do that, that real like on the ground pastor stuff with the people who come to those masses who are ordinarily like uh, just regular Vatican workers. He likes to really shake up who comes. It's not the wealthy folks who it used to be under previous pontificates. I, I do I do wonder, though, if um, masses are beginning to open, like you said, on the 18th, they'll be with restrictions. And that doesn't necessarily mean everyone is going to come back all at once. Yeah, exactly. So wouldn't it make sense to keep streaming for those who maybe don't feel safe or uncomfortable um, or just don't know? Yeah, that was my question, too. Um, and I, I brought this up to our Vatican correspondent, who I co-host the Inside the Vatican podcast with, Jerry. And he uh, said that, well, you know, a lot of a lot of other parishes and local churches are doing their own live streams. So, like, I guess that, yeah, the territory is covered. There's plenty of options. But I, I do wish that Francis would continue doing this. Yeah, because he's definitely been someone that not only Catholics, um, but a lot of people have looked to during this really unsettling time um, as as someone to pray with, uh, someone to look to as kind of a moral compass. Um, going back to that really striking Urbi at Orbi address, uh, which which you you covered with Jerry the day of, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, can you take us back there? What was his message then? And and what has his has have there been themes from that that have continued throughout the past weeks? Yeah, definitely. Gosh, there's so much to say about it. It was so beautiful. Um, If our listeners haven't gone and watched any clips of the video, highly recommend it. It was so striking to see the Pope, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not not stumbling, but he doesn't he doesn't walk super comfortably and kind of walking out with this monstrance over his head as he's being like buffeted by the rain, blessing the city. It was crazy. Um, But the themes that he covered in his talk were, you know, mostly he focused on this story of 
uh, the disciples being in the boat with Jesus and Jesus falls asleep and there's this big storm and then they get really freaked out and they wake Jesus up and they're like, were you going to abandon us? Were you going to let us die? Um, and he talked about how we all feel that way right now. You know, we're we're crying out to God and we're like, what, what the heck is going on? Are you going to help us? Um, and what he really emphasized was that one, we're all in the same boat, and two, God is right there with us and is going to take care of us. We have to ask. Um, and another thing that he really covered in that speech was he talked about how this is a time of conversion. Um, he really focused on, you know, this could be a moment of change in history, and that's what we've seen a lot of follow-up on. Uh, so Francis has started this coronavirus task force. They're focusing on a few main areas, which includes, like, some immediate humanitarian efforts. They're also trying to fundraise to cover the work that they want to do because everyone's losing money right now, especially the church. Nobody's putting money in the donation collection basket, you know. Um, and then he's got an area focusing on the environment. He's got one focusing on diplomatic relations with states because uh, international cooperation and sharing of resources is, is a big theme that we've been seeing lately out of the Vatican, especially as concerns coronavirus uh, response and also kind of the future society that we have the opportunity to build right now. So that's something that we've been talking about, too. You, you alluded to it there, but this pandemic is also bringing with it this uh, enormous economic recession. Um, mm -hmm. How is that affecting sort of the Vatican specifically uh, budget lines? Yeah, well, like I mentioned, they they aren't getting a lot of uh, donations right now. Peter's Pence is way down. That's the big collection. It's also been postponed for this year. It's usually happens in June, I believe, and it's been postponed to the fall. Um, yeah, so so that's a big concern. Um, there's also like the Vatican, like everyone else, has investments. They have investments in real estate, and um, I don't even know what stocks they might have. But you know, as, as when the global economy turns down, it affects the Vatican too. Well, I feel like this is like an area that a lot of Catholics, I guess, don't, or even anyone has a real grasp on, right? When we talk about the church and the and its finances, it can be a little confusing. But like, what like operationally day to day does like the Vatican need to sort of uh, what bills does it need to pay? Because a lot of people look at, I think, a place like St. Peter's with all the art and all um, a lot of riches that a lot a lot of stuff that Pope Francis is kind of like forsaken and and say like, oh, they're totally fine, right? Like this recession isn't going to affect them. Yeah, well, I mean, all those things cost money to maintain, right? So there's a ton of the Vatican economy is like maintenance workers and uh, the folks who work in its many offices. Um, but even right now, like there's additional expenses because of sanitation, right? You, you can look and see Vatican media is posting all kinds of photos of, you know, they have to fully sanitize like St. Peter's Basilica, which takes so much time um, and so much, so much labor, right? So they have they have those expenses. Um, and then right now, a big thing that they're trying to raise money for, which I mentioned before, is is trying to fund their charitable work. So the Vatican's been earmarking a ton of money. And uh, Pope Francis actually authorized his papal almoner, Cardinal Krzyzewski, who I think you've talked about on the show before. He's the guy who broke down the manhole to restore power to all of those refugees who are living in that building in Rome. Um he, Pope Francis allowed him to make an ask of the Italian cardinals and say, hey, you need to send money to the Pope so that he can, he can, you know, work on some humanitarian stuff in response to this crisis. But I do know that um, even in the midst of this pan pandemic, like the charitable organization is, we need that kind of more, more than ever, if anything. 
Uh, Colleen, I kind of want to circle back to um, like the world we build after the pandemic. And I'm wondering why, uh, why Pope Francis, like what is he hoping for the world to look like after once we've gone through um, this pandemic? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. And I think that that's the question that's kind of at the heart of what me and Jerry have been talking about a lot as relates to this pandemic. Um, You know, Francis has laid out this image of kind of a a more egalitarian, more resource sharing type of world. He really even started as early as his first apostolic exhortation, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. And that's what we've seen him talk a lot about uh, in recent weeks. So he's been calling on wealthier nations to forgive the debts of poorer nations or to at least reduce their debts. He's been talking with world leaders about possible ceasefires in different conflict areas. He thinks that's really important. And also he thinks that you should be redirecting military funding towards these humanitarian concerns, not just uh, medical funding, but also, you know, things like social services, things that would really help people. He's really, really concerned about the poor getting left behind as, you know, wealthier nations maybe find a vaccine first or maybe bend their curves, you know, to almost zero, but then it's just ramping up in some poorer places. Um, So he's been really, really focused on that. And how have people been responding to that, to his point? Yeah, I I feel like I run into this question a lot when we cover, uh, you know, the Pope speaking out on a topic or or whatever, where uh, there's often this question of like, does it really mean anything? And what we've seen lately is that the Pope's been doing a lot of work with international leaders. He was on the phone recently with Emmanuel Macron from France. Uh, he talked to Angela Merkel. He's really been encouraging the EU. And in response, I mean, we can't say this is solely because of the Pope, but, you know, right around the time of those conversations, right after those conversations, uh, the EU started taking decisive steps towards putting a lot of funds towards coronavirus research. They earmarked a a few billion dollars, uh, which was amazing. And they also have started talking about things like uh, debt forgiveness. So, you know, it's it's hard to draw like a one-to-one cause and effect uh, with these things, but definitely Pope Francis has been trying to push the conversation towards uh, a more more egalitarian world. And in addition to reaching out to political leaders, he's also been collaborating with other um, faith leaders. Uh, and we're recording this on May 15th. And yesterday, May 14th, was the World Day of Prayer, um, which Pope Francis took part in. Can you tell us um, where this idea came from and what did it look like? Yeah, for sure. So I remember um, a couple of years ago, Pope Francis took this trip to Abu Dhabi, which was like seen as this very big, you know, kind of step uh, across across boundaries, right? He spent a lot of time with top Muslim leaders, especially the top Sunni leader. Um, and they, while he was there, he signed this document on uh, human fraternity. There was some other adjective in front of that too, but human fraternity was the was the main idea of the document. And that has actually been picked up like across the Muslim world, uh, especially in Abu Dhabi. It, it was it, they put it into like the school curriculums, um, but it really teaches about you know, uh, interreligious cooperation. And so also out of that document, there was this kind of follow-up committee established. It's a bunch of Catholic and Muslim leaders, and it's, you know, Pope Francis' secretary on there, the, like, president of the university in Abu Dhabi is on it. And they put together this pitch uh, for the Pope, and they said, hey, you know, let's have this international day of prayer for all religions, even though it's kind of headed up by the Catholics and the Muslims. 
And yeah, that's what happened on May 14th. Then the Pope, the day after they proposed it, he announced it uh, to the world at mass. Now, it was a day of prayer and fasting, correct? Fasting, prayer, and works of charity. So here's the thing. If I were Muslim leaders trying to get Catholics involved in fasting, I would want us to pony up a little bit on what we mean by fasting. It was a little striking to see this sort of promulgated during Ramadan when Muslims are doing like real hardcore fasting. And, you know, Catholic, our understanding of it is, well, you know, you can have you can still have one big meal right. and a couple small meals. <laughs> yeah, we get totally schooled in fasting by so many other other faiths. It doesn't feel like we're in solidarity with our like Muslim brothers and sisters in that point. Yeah, I was looking for uh, some more rules yesterday because it felt like we were uh, maybe not putting in the same amount of effort. But, <laughs> but hey, good on you for doing it at all. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> It all, yeah, I guess that's a good Catholic way of looking at my my Lenten. <laughs> Maybe a little bit Jesuitical, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. Um, shifting a little bit uh, from the Vatican to some of your other writing, you are right now working on a biography of Madeline Delbrell, correct? Could mm-hmm. you tell us uh, who that is and why we should know about her? Just a, your elevator pitch. So Madeline Delbrell, as I said my on my last uh, Jesuitical appearance, was she's nicknamed the French Dorothy Day. She was a uh, social worker, a poet, and also a mystic. Uh, and she lived in France in uh, basically the first half of the 20th century. So uh, she, you know, grew up in this kind of bohemian lifestyle. Her parents were part of these sort of glamorous like salons in France, and then. Uh, when she was in her 20s, she had kind of a series of life crises that led to her converting to Catholicism. And she went to her bishop and she said, you know, where can I go? So he sends her to this communist village and she starts kind of doing social programs there. Uh, and then the war breaks out and she gets drafted to work in the communist government coordinating social programs. Uh, and then after the war, she's so good at the job that she keeps it. And so over over the course of her life, she becomes this very sought after writer on Catholic communist relations. And also the thing that really gets to me is that she was writing also about the missionary role of lay people, you know, way before Vatican II. I think she was way, way ahead of her time. Back in the 1930s, she's writing about this stuff. So that's the thing that that really first struck me about her, and that's why I love her so much. And she was declared venerable, so she's on the path to sainthood, correct? Yeah, she is back in, gosh, 2018 now. You, um, Colleen, you recently wrote a piece for our spring uh, literary issue called Subway Mysticism, How Madeline Debrell Transformed My Commute. And I want to know a little bit more about Subway mysticism, like what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so Madeline has this, it's it's probably her most popular essay. It's called We the Ordinary People of the Streets. And it's like this manifesto of, you know, lay urbanites, basically. Young, hip, and lay. Um, is that what you even say? <laughs> Young, hip, and lay. Yes, just, there's an exactly. obvious tie in there. So I'm just going to lay it up for you. <laughs> Madeline Delbrell is the saint for Jesuitical listeners, for sure. Um, but she she lays out this kind of parallel image between a traditional like uh, missionary who goes out, she says, to stand on the top of a desert dune and looks out at all of the unbaptized lands that they're going to go evangelize. And then she says, and we, the ordinary people of the streets, you know, stand at the top of a subway staircase and we look out at this throng of people who are shoving against each other and all this. And she says, and we look out at them and we just see so many people who are longing to be loved. Um, that is definitely not so what I see at the top of the subway stairs. 
<laughs> but honestly, like Zach, I, this sounds crazy. But after I started reading her, which I write in that article, I started reading her again for the first time since college while I was like on a crowded airport bus. And uh, and I don't know, she like transformed my vision. You know, I started looking around at all these people and kind of letting myself see that. And it's it's I think you've talked before on the show about this, like when you're on the subway and you like allow yourself not to fall into that kind of New York numbness that we all learn to adopt. Um, it's kind of heartbreaking. Like you just see so many people who are, who are so in need, who are so like shut off to, you know, a lot of the good things of the world. And it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's really moving to kind of learn to see people as people again. Yeah. And I think the only thing maybe, crazier than learning to pray on the subway is is missing riding on the subway which I honestly yeah. do right now um so I'm wondering so, weird. <laughs> so you you kind of found refound this spirituality um when you moved to New York and we're living this busy life um and it was really resonant with that I'm wondering how that has translated to to life in quarantine um are there still <laughs> still aspects of her spirituality that have been nourishing for you in this time yeah absolutely I think it's maybe less the subway stuff now though the the main the central thing there right is is that you know everyone just desperately needs to be shown God's love and I think that that's obviously still true it's just that the way that we do it is a little different now the thing that's really been getting to me about Madeline lately is, um, you know, we're all adjusting to a different set of daily challenges. Um, Like daily life looks really different right now. And so do kind of the annoying parts of daily life. Uh, And her whole thing is, you know, she sees the uh, another passage from her that always sticks out to me is that she sees um, all of the inconveniences of daily life as she calls them faithful religious superiors. So again, she's like playing with this, this contrast between like a contemplative who's in a monastery and then us who are living ordinary lives and she says you know like the person who like corners you on the sidewalk to ask for money like that person is is like a religious superior to you you just have to you know assent to to being stopped by them or forgetting your keys or missing the bus these are all things that we just have to say yes to in this in a way that's similar to the way that um, other people have, or in a way that's similar to how, you know, somebody in religious life has to say yes to what their superior asks of them, even if they don't want it. And so for me lately, like that's been something I've been drawing on as, you know, I'm stuck in the house. Like I want to be doing other things. I have to, I'm like trying to plan a wedding and having to deal with the fact that like none of this is, you know, able to be for sure like happening. And uh, and these are just things that I have to say yes to. And so I've been trying to learn to see them with that like lens of grace, I guess, which I learned from Madeline. Now, I'm wondering if she writes and you write about her having sort of like a, an in on what an urban spirituality could look like. What are some of some of the other hallmarks besides like public transportation and being around a ton of people is obviously one of them. But I know that when I moved to New York, um, I feel like maybe this is just, you know, being in my 20s, but I feel like I had to relearn a lot of things about prayer and community when I got here. Like one of the things that I feel like we we always talk around on the show here is like uh, parish shopping, for example, um, which I feel like is a a hallmark of modern urban spirituality where you can, uh, unlike a lot of places in the rest of the world or in the country, you can, you know, 
I can walk a mile in any direction and pass six Catholic churches, right? In any way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I had to learn what a responsible way to do that as a 20 year old looked like. You know, yeah, what I mean? well, I mean, if we look at the example of Madeline's life, like when she's 30, she gets sent out to Ivry, the, the communist suburb. And even though this environment is super hostile to Catholics, like literally there were Catholics and communists like throwing, you know, rocks at each other in the street. Um, she makes a really intentional effort of like integrating herself into that community. And, and we see that pay off, obviously, like, you know, not only does she run all these social programs, but it goes beyond a job. She has like really deep personal relationships with a lot of people. I, I mentioned really briefly in the uh, piece that I wrote that she like starts a bakery with this communist guy and his, uh, I think, Dominican nun sister. And they had been like estranged from each other, but they start this bakery together that did really badly. And, you know, but it was like they still they still tried. They ran it out of their uh, like downstairs area in their house. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that I'm a big believer that there is like some kind of inherent value in trying to put down roots, no matter how thin, in the area that you're in. Like I, I personally am pretty opposed to the notion of parish shopping. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this contrast in your piece about how Dorothy Day, when she had her conversion experience, she was surrounded by a lot of other Catholics in New York on the Lower East Side, whereas Madeline really was kind of on her own, which I feel like is something a lot of young adults in particular today, whether they're in a city or not, can relate to is how to how to live like a, a bridge building Catholic life when you might not have your squad behind you. Right. She had two other people, but she tried to start it with like, I think almost nine or something. Maybe it was six to nine, but a bunch of them like peeled off at the last second and said they weren't going to do it. So it was just the three of them and they had their little like pod. Um, that's been something that's really important to me to kind of pivot to right now is like, I have my cousin lives across the hall from me and without that kind of pod, I would be going crazy right now. Well, Colleen, um, thank you so much for joining us before we let you go. Uh, we do have one final question for you that maybe you may already be prepared for. We'll see if, uh, if you can canonize anyone Catholic or not living or dead, who would it be and why? I rewatched the movie A Hidden Life last night, uh, which is the movie about Franz Jägerstetter, who was the uh, Austrian conscientious objector to World War II, um, and he was killed for that. But in the movie, and also in his letters, which I'm reading right now for my marriage prep, I want to canonize Franz's wife, Francisca. She is, so she doesn't end up having this like vocation that Franz does to, you know, go off to like a Nazi prison and be killed for her beliefs. But I would say that in like a very Madeleine Delbrel way, uh, the thing that she's called to is a lot more ordinary and is just as holy, which is that she ends up having to stay back in the city, raise the kids, well, city, in the tiny village that they live in, uh, you know, with their kids, with Franz's mom, and the whole community, like, hates them because of, you know, him basically being seen as a traitor to the Nazi party. Um, and, yeah, I think that, you know, in the letters and also in the movie, what really shines is, like, her strength. Um, I think that she really gets a sense, she doesn't always totally understand at least at the beginning what Franz is doing but she trusts him and I think that she also like comes not comes around but I think that she like learns to really believe that what he's doing is the right thing and that also like the struggles that she's undergoing are something that she's genuinely called to 
And so I think I think they should do kind of a Louis and Zaley Martin type of thing and bring them both canonize in. them both as a couple. I yeah. love that take. Which is couple goals, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us again, Colleen. Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, you can find the show at americamagazine.org. Uh, you can also find a little shortcut to it uh, at insidethevatican.org. And you can find Inside the Vatican on Twitter now. Our new Twitter account is uh, I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. So inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. We ran out of characters. <laughs> it sounds very hip. <laughs> <laughs> I like have to spell it out every time now. <laughs> And people can subscribe wherever um, Wherever podcasts are found. Wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, go look for Inside the Vatican. Yes. And now you've mentioned the book, so you have to finish it. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, I know. And I signed a contract. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Be well, Colleen. Thanks, Colleen. Call anytime. Bye. (laughs) 